Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hi, welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, craftspeople, as well as people who help promote the arts in their community. Today we're going to be talking about one of our biggest icons, one of our biggest artistic and musical icons of all time, B.B. King. And joining us today is Daniel DeVise, who is a writer and uh, has written a brand new book, a brand new biography, in-depth biography about B.B. King called King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Daniel, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and an honor. Well, this is a really interesting book. You know, everybody in Mississippi knows B.B. King, and a lot of them feel like they know him. So this is a really important book for a lot of folks to, to dig into. Tell me about how you came about. Uh, you used to work as a journalist. You've, you've written some other books. How did you come to uh, looking at B.B. King as a topic? Yeah, I, I've been writing books for uh, 10 years now. This is my fourth and with each one I've tried to write about somebody really amazingly important in our history, some great cultural icon, and someone beloved to me personally for one reason or another. So uh, five, six years ago I came out with a book about Andy Griffith and, and Don Knotts, the great sheriff and deputy and lifelong friends. Don was my brother-in-law. That gave me sort of entree into that project. But also, even if he hadn't been my brother-in-law, I think they're extremely important, and that show is extremely important in capturing a lost Americana, the, the sort of small town that so many of our families come from. And then after that, I did a book about Greg LeMond, who the easy shorthand is to say he was Lance Armstrong before Lance Armstrong. He was the great American cycling hero of the 1970s and 80s, which was an innocent time. There wasn't doping with a capital D going on then. And so uh, he, he won and won clean uh, three times at the Tour de France, the great, the great cycling race. And I focus on the, his second victory, which if you're listening to this, you probably don't realize that was the greatest Tour de France ever. And this is a, a massively important world sporting event. So Bibi, um, I decided to do that book because I, I love the man. I love his music. I'm a lifelong sort of frustrated music writer. I never got to be a music writer uh, as a reporter, even though I've, I've played in cover bands. I've done hundreds and hundreds of concerts, performances. on a, I have a Gibson Les Paul that's literally worn out on the back from just hundreds of, of gigs. So I always wanted to do a music book, and I love and revere Bibi. And I thought that I could do something around just explaining simply and plainly, but, you know, I took 500 pages to do it, why he's so famous. So here's why I think he's so, so, so famous. Uh, you know, people don't necessarily know the why of these things, like why is Louis Armstrong so famous? Well, because he's the one, I think, who sort of created the role for a, a jazz musician as a soloist uh, doing sort of improvisation and put the solo instrument out front in jazz. That's huge, and he did it. That's him, his, his doing. So with B.B., what I think B.B. King accomplished back in 1950, a long time ago, was to create a new guitar sound, which was an extension of his singing voice. He would sing, and then he'd hand the mic over to Lucille, and Lucille would sing, and that was new. 
And it took 10 or 15 years, but it became the prevalent sound in all of pop music and remains so really to the end of the century. So I just wanted to make that case, basically. This is why the man is so important. And it's a huge accomplishment. It's way bigger than blues even. I mean, this is central to popular music. Talk a little bit about, you know, so you started this after he had passed. Talk about kind of the challenges specifically of, of working on a biography that's kind of... In, it's kind of near historical, I guess, in the sense there's still people around, but the, your subject no longer is. I mean, how many hundreds of times did I wish that I could talk to him? Um, I never met him. Uh, and, and many people listening to this broadcast probably did meet him, so you've got that over me. But what I did have was access to many, many, many of the people who were closest to him. I say, uh, the publisher says, and this is the truth in the press materials for this book, that I, I got to nearly everyone in his inner circle. Um, his nephew, Walter, who joined me at an event in Nashville several days ago. His ex-wife, Sue, who was the love of his life. Dozens, I think, at least a dozen or 20 or 24 of or 25 of his bandmates. I mean, I interviewed many of his musicians, almost everyone who was still alive and was in good enough health to talk, including people like Floyd Newman, who played with him at the beginning, at the beginning. I, I interviewed him in his house in Memphis. I interviewed a woman in a nursing home in Winona, who had gone to school with, with Riley King when Riley King was like 12. Um, I got to everybody that I could possibly get to. And so they're the voices that tell the story of his life, not, not me. I mean, yeah, my voice is in there. But I, And Bibi left us literally probably thousands of, of ex exemplars of his own voice talking in interviews and feature articles over and over in radio interviews, television interviews. He, he wrote a memoir that, ran, that published in 1996, and I, I, I grabbed a lot of his voice from that memoir because it's a beautiful memoir. David Ritz and he collaborated for a, a wonderful book that really captures his, his voice. So I felt like I had him with me the whole time. Uh, you're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Daniel DeVise. He is a writer, and his brand-new book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, we're talking about today. There's so much to talk about. I mean, he a 60-year-plus career, so we really can only hit some, some big highlights. But maybe you could talk a little bit about digging into his early years. And, you know, it was, it was full, just full of trauma, really, just moving around and, and a lot of uh, uh, death and a lot of uh, uprooting. What do you think about the stuff that he experienced and how that affected him later on as a performer and as, a, as, a, as an adult? Yeah. Um, you know, um, I think any biographer, you almost want to put post-its up on your computer screen reminding you of what the central themes are. And with B.B. With King, I think maybe the most important one is, is the loss of his family. He was born outside Itabina, outside Berclair, which is even smaller than Itabina, in 19, I think, 25. I, I always forget the details after the book's done. But he was the only child when he was born, and then... They, they had a, a, another child, but that child died, I think, in infancy. So first he lost his little brother. And then at about, when he was about five, his mother left his father, I think probably because of, of his drinking. And so then he sort of lost his father, if you will. His father went off and started another family. And then when, when, when Riley King was about 10, his mother died, I believe, of, of untreated diabetes. So he lost his mother. Then he lived with his grandmother until about four years after that she died. And so then he lost his grandmother. And he lived for a time with an uncle, who I, who I picture as being a little bit mean. But basically, he'd lost his entire family. And that is an enormous, enormous element in, in who he became. I think he spent his adult life sort of trying to build 
and savor a family. And he wound up having uh, 15 children. And the people close to him, uh, including his ex-wife uh, and, and, his, and his, kin, his kin, believe that uh, those children are probably not his biological children. B.B. Um, B. King was married twice, and the two marriages spanned 16 years. And those uh, partnerships yielded no children, no children. And both of those women had children with other men. But anyway, the, the point, the reason this matters is B.B. had these 15 children, and he absolutely loved them and adored them, and he prays on them and, and gifted money to them, and, and, and uh, one of his, his sort of dying wish was that, that their educations should be paid for. So he's, to this day, his legacy is that you know, these grandchildren and great-grandchildren are being sent to college, that sort of thing, you know, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of hitting on the early years and the musical influences, you know, B.B., came out of the Delta, you know, he spent a good part of his childhood in the Delta and is associated with the Delta. But, all, it's, it, and you point out in the book, you know, his guiding star kind of influences in terms of musical influences were not were not the raw uh, rural Delta bluesmen, but, act, but other folks that were more urbane, more kind of a more modern, I guess, in a sense, in, in terms of their approach. And, and I think that really distinguishes him from everybody else that came out of that time period in, in the Delta, I guess. Yeah, the, the, the thing, it's hard to wrap your mind around this now, but when, when Riley King was 5, 10, 15 years old, we're talking the 30s and into the 40s, Robert Johnson was not well-known. Uh, his songs weren't being played on the radio. There were no Robert Johnson records in the house of Riley's Aunt Mima, who was his hip aunt. There were no Sun House records making the rounds. Uh, I, the only uh, great Delta Blues man uh, Riley knew was Charlie Patton and I think the only reason he knew Charlie Patton's work was that Charlie Patton I believe had started recording before the crash and so he actually sold some records <laughs> which sets him apart from the others if that makes any sense uh, so B.B. was aware of his stuff but what Riley King knew was what he heard uh, on, on records and on the radio and that would be Blind Lemon Jefferson the very first I think uh sort of country blues master out of Texas because he also recorded in the 20s before the crash, and he was huge. So Riley's Aunt Mima would have had his records. But most of his other influences were not men playing acoustic guitars. His influences were mostly ensembles that wore suits and had charts, you know, written, printed arrangements, and horns, and full bands. Um, and one example would be Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan. Another example would be T-Bone Walker, who B.B. claimed as his greatest single influence. T-Bone Walker played not blues. He played rhythm and blues arrangements and fronted a band. And what made T-Bone Walker really unusual was that he played the guitar because the guitar was almost all but non-existent at the front of rhythm and blues music in the 1940s, really until B.B. put it there. Of course, he also, his early, like a lot of... Um blues musicians of his era, his first experience as kind of a performer was not in the blues, but was in gospel. Yeah. Um, Riley King lived in Kilmichael, which is, I think, just below the hill country, from around age maybe seven or eight until, oh, I don't know, uh, five, six years after that. And he had a huge uh, sort of inspiration in um, Archie Fair, who was a, a preacher who played the guitar and um, led these services that, that enraptured B.B. And um, so Riley King, the, the child, yearned to become a singing, guitar-playing preacher like Archie Fair. And so 
he had a succession of two different gospel groups that I believe he organized and sort of led, the first in Kilmichael and the second, uh, the famous St. John gospel singers, I think they were called, in Indianola when, when Riley was older. That second group actually went on the air on the radio at, I think, WGRM out of Greenville. And so if you'd been listening, if you'd in, been in the, the range of that station, you'd have heard him singing gospel with his gospel. I think it was a quintet, uh, and this would have been in the early 1940s. And Riley King wanted to take that group out on the road and become like the Soul Stirrers, you know, really famous, nationally known group, but no one else in the band was really interested in that. And so he decided to take another course. Yeah. And just a, a, a tiny little detail that's interesting is that he, um, like his father, became a tractor driver, which was like a really high level in terms of plantation work at that time for 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 a black man. He, he kind of rose the ranks, I guess, pretty quickly. Right? And this gets to the other central theme in his life. Um, so we've talked about his mother. Now let's talk about his father. Albert King was uh, an alpha male, I think, uh, the, the sort of classic breadwinner provider. By the time B.B. Riley was entering his adulthood or his teens even, Albert, the father, was a well-paid tractor driver um, providing for a, a large family in Lexington, Mississippi. I believe that Albert, the father, occupied sort of the top rung on the food chain if you were a, a black uh, sharecropper, basically. The sharecroppers, my understanding is, pretty much existed in perpetual debt, in perpetual uh, servitude to the landowner because of the way sharecropping worked. But Albert had, had escaped that and, and was driving a tractor and earning some real money, so he was actually able to support a family and have a house. And I believe that Riley, Beebe, drew enormous inspiration from his father's example and, and became himself a workaholic, became extremely ambitious, I mean, frankly, a lot more ambitious even than his father, and set out for his whole adult life to prove to his father that he too could work really, really, really hard. And the first, one of the first of those goals that Riley King accomplished was to himself become a tractor driver. And he drove a tractor in Indianola uh, in the employ of a man named Johnson Barrett. Uh, and that was, even if that was all that he'd accomplished and if he'd gone to his grave as a tractor driver, it was a, an enormous accomplishment because it was a really good job for someone uh, who came from where, where Riley King came from. Yeah. Well, let's, let's listen to some B.B. King music. I picked out a track here from the first live album that B.B. King did in the early 1960s. Tell us just a little bit about this before we listen to the track. Live at the Regal was released, I think, in 1965, uh, at which time he had almost no white fans or followers. Uh, he had been a huge star in the segregated black rhythm and blues market for 15 years and it uh, signaled his arrival to a major label ABC Paramount but ABC Paramount hadn't known what to do with him they'd actually had him do this sort of crooning big band stuff that sounded kind of like uh, Ray Charles but it didn't work for B.B. King again the, the huge irony here is that the label didn't realize that they had this guitar genius in their stable they thought of him as a singer and Throughout the first 15 years of his career, B.B. King was mostly known as the greatest blues singer. You almost find no mention of his guitar playing in any clipping between about 1950 and about 1965. It's hard, again, to wrap your head around that, but he wasn't really celebrated for his guitar. Nobody was. The guitar was still kind of an oddball instrument, even into the 60s, really. So Live at the Regal 
had ABC Paramount finally realizing a way to sort of put him in the right context, which was playing live and, you know, doing his, his amazing stage show. And they got good, good recordings. Now, BV and his bandmates did not like that record. And the reason they didn't like it was nothing to do with the recording quality. It was that uh, the Regal had paired BB's band with the house band, which produced this sort of cacophony that the, the two bands weren't obviously weren't used to playing together. And so to the very finely tuned ears of B.B. King and Duke Jethro, his, his keyboard guy who I interviewed, it was a it was a hot mess. But tons of people bought it in the in the black community and loved it. And then gradually over the middle and latter years of the 1960s, the record came into the hands of a, a whole bunch of white guitar people. And they started listening to it, not for his singing so much as for his guitar work. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Daniel DeVise. He is a writer, and he has a brand new book out called King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, and going over his 60-plus year career. Let's talk about Memphis. The first thing that jumped out to me from your book is, you know, a lot of performers kind of step into their, when they go on the stage, and they're like fully formed. They're, they're who they're going to be. But B.B. King, he got to Memphis and realized he had more work to do. When B.B. Riley, Riley King, realized that his gospel quintet that no one else was interested in breaking out and going on the road, he decided he resolved to do it himself. The opportunity arrived in the form of a disaster. Um, he, he broke off, the, I think, the manifold of the tractor he was driving and, and was terrified of his boss getting furious with him, understandably. <laughs> so he split town and hitchhiked in a grocery truck to Memphis. And this would have been, I believe, 1946, shortly after the war. And I would say he probably wasn't ready. Um, he probably hadn't played enough guitar. He, he had recently started playing the blues. Um, the story goes that he was busking on street corners and just learned that he could get a lot more money in his hat or whatever, in his guitar case, if he played the blues rather than gospel. But he was no master of, of probably of the blues by that time. So he went to Memphis, and he was still a little bit raw, I guess, and lived with his cousin, Booker White, who uh, I think was a cousin once removed. I, and Riley lived with his with his cousin Booker for a number of months, and basically sort of interned with him, sort of shadowed him, and they I think went to a whole bunch of gigs that Booker had playing beautiful Delta slide guitar, which is what Booker White did. And I believe that he learned an enormous amount from Booker, both about guitar craft, but also just about stagecraft and how to be a performer and how to give it your all. 
Um, I think it's extremely important for, for his later development. But yeah, uh, Riley King himself was not ready, I don't think, to take Memphis by storm. There were tons of great, great musicians in Memphis. So he, he sort of uh, uh, limped back to uh, Indianola, back to his wife, Martha, his first wife, back to his job. And he had to, I, I would say that you have this blank period of a couple of years then because I think he was repaying the $500, which is a huge sum that he owed Johnson Barrett because of that exhaust pipe breaking off. And so, yeah, he came back and then he staged a return journey to Memphis. I believe it was early in 1949. And this is tricky because we're going partly on Beebe's own recollection. He says that he went to Memphis a second time and within like literally hours of his arrival, walked into a radio station in West Memphis and pretty much just walked into the booth where Sonny Boy Williamson was holding court. Uh, he was one of the two great DJs at this West Memphis station, the other being Holland Wolf, and talked his way on the air and played, I'm going to imagine he played a probably not a, not a Delta Blues song, but probably something like a Louis Jordan song, but he played it on acoustic guitar and sang, and Sonny Boy liked it and the listeners liked it. So he parlayed that, by his, by his account, within hours into a daily gig at a, at a club, in, well, nightly gig at a club in West Memphis, which was this sort of gambling zone. And then, that, well, the club owner said, that's fine, you can play here, but you've got to get on the radio your, your own self. So the next day, by, by Riley's reckoning, he traveled into, into Memphis proper and showed up at WDIA, which I'm sure that he would have known of. WDIA was the first radio station with all-black talent. And that very day, apparently, Riley talked his way into a gig playing little 15-minute segments on the radio for that station. And the white manager of the station, a guy named Bert Ferguson, sort of dubbed him B.B. He said, well, let's call you B.B. because that sounds good. And that was the beginning of B.B. Of King. And I think that was probably around the start of April 1949. And the reason I say that is I found I went through weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of radio listings in the commercial appeal. And I found the first one that mentioned B.B. King. And it was in, in April of 1949. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that lines up. And a radio show for a performer in that period was just like the lifeblood. I mean, that was the thing that got you your name out there to not necessarily with your records yet, but to get bookings and start performing. Yeah, um, he got into this cycle of cross-promotion. He didn't get paid to do these little 15-minute radio spots, but he would tout his gigs at you know Miss Annie's Cafe, and then he'd play the gigs at Miss Annie's Cafe, and he would get paid for those, and he would tout his radio show. And then on weekends, he would sell this dubious remedy called a Pepticon, I think it was called, which Bert Ferguson, the this, this self-same station manager, was marketing uh, to try to make money. It was, it was basically just alcohol and sugar and who knows what all. But B.B. Uh, King would, would, would play his guitar and hawk that off of a flatbed on the weekends and tout both his gigs and his radio show. And so gradually the black community in Memphis especially became very, very much aware of B.B. Uh, of King, so much so that by June, I think it was June or July of that same year, just a few months later, he made his first recordings, very rudimentary blues recordings at a studio out of, well, they were recorded in Memphis, but they were released by Bullet Records out of Nashville. And very few people, you'd have to have probably a box set of B.B. King to even hear any of these. The most notable track was, was called uh, Miss Martha King in uh, homage to his wife. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Daniel DeVise. He's the author of King of the Blues, Rise and Reign of B.B. King, brand new biography of B.B. King. 
kind of in that time period, he that's when he really starts hitting the road once he has a record, right? Well, those first recordings were, were, were rudimentary. Um, B.B. had not played with other musicians. He was in that gospel group, but that was a vocal group. He'd never played with other musicians. I don't think he knew. Well, he said he didn't know like what, what measures were, what 4-4 time was, what a 12-bar blues was. Um, and I would draw a comparison to Bob Dylan. Both Bob Dylan and B.B. King in their early recordings, you can tell they don't know when to stop playing in one chord and switch to a different chord. They just would play until they felt like switching chords. <laughs> That's what the solo folk or blues troubadour does. So B.B. had to learn, and, and his great teacher in that era was Robert Lockwood. Um, I think they call him Junior. He had studied under Robert Johnson and was an extraordinary guitarist who had played with many great other musicians, including Sonny Boy. And Robert Lockwood came into B.B.'s employ, which sounds a little backward, right? B.B. was not an experienced musician, but he was popular. And so Lockwood could earn money by supporting B.B. and being this really overqualified rhythm guitarist as B.B. was learning how to play solo guitar. And so I picture this kind of, you know, your sort of 10,000 hours thing. B.B. had spent many, many hours practicing the guitar in Indianola while paying back his boss in 46, 47, 48. Then he comes to Memphis and starts doing just dozens and dozens and dozens of gigs and learns probably electric guitar craft, really learns to play like T-Bone, which is what he wants, T-Bone Walker. And then I, I think that between 1949 and 1950, and your ears will testify to this, if you listen to, this, to the records B.B. put out just a year later in 1950 with Sam Phillips, he has developed his own style of guitar, which is a solo, single-string style that is basically an extension of his own voice. And this is where he took T-Bone Walker's style and made it his own. Um, and that's the big the big breakthrough. Uh, so all of the B.B. King singles from 1950 on, to a greater or lesser extent, feature this beautiful vocal style of guitar craft, which B.B. was always drawing in influences from everywhere, right? So he'd, he'd drawn in the sound of T-Bone Walker, which is the sound of Lonnie Johnson, the great blues jazz guitarist of the 20s and 30s, Charlie Christian, who'd played with uh, Benny Goodman in the late 30s, and added to it this beautiful, uh, just um, sweet vocal kind of cry that was his own his own creation, I think. And in addition to uh, Lockwood, who later kind of became, through the revival and that, you know, kind of the the connection to Robert Johnson and became very... There was there was multiple there were other people in that original band that went on to a lot of prominence as well. Yeah, um, the the people who were in this sort of Memphis mafia of of uh, incredibly talented musicians and singers played down the idea that they were a band or anything. And I can't remember now what they were collectively called, but they themselves they were just a group of hustling musicians, hustling in the sense of hustle, not hustling like anything bad. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in that group. I'm going to forget some of the names, but Bobby Bland, I, I, at some point, was driving B.B. to gigs, I think, in his mother's car or something like that. And who else? Um, Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace, right. Yeah. The, 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 the great Johnny Ace, uh, I think, took over B.B.'s band when B.B. went on the road as a national star. And Earl Forrest, you might not know that name, but he was a great drummer who became a, a, an artist on the roster of uh, the same label that employed B.B., which was uh, the Bahari Brothers Modern Records label out of Los Angeles. And, and there were other, but Junior Parker, I think, came out of that same group. Yeah. Just kind of an aside thing that you get into in the book in different areas is B.B.'s connections to and associations with jazz musicians, which was, for people who think about the blues and jazz being very kind of split from each other, you know, 
it was interesting to read about like his his friendships with some of these folks and that. Yeah, um, I picture that all of these great artists would stay at the same hotels because the hotels were segregated, and so BB talks of like staying at a hotel in Houston, and there's um, Dizzy Gillespie and there's Charlie Parker, and there's a sweet sweet moment where where BB meets Charlie Parker, and BB is in awe of Charlie Parker as as would you or me or anyone. And Charlie says, "Oh, we're all we're all just playing the blues, BB. You know, you and me and everyone else." And BB was like, "Oh, you know, that's really sweet." And it was very just uh, reassuring and and encouraging of of Charlie Parker to say that to BB. But they admired each other and each other's work. And later on, BB became very close to Miles Davis. Um, and I think the two are are quite similar in in the sense that both BB King and Miles Davis separately led their genres of music into successive decades by staying at the top and, and by evolving and by changing. I mean, Miles Davis recordings from uh, the late 60s really barely resemble Miles Davis recordings from the early 60s or from the 50s or from the beginning of the 50s. I mean, he, he changed dramatically and stayed on top in that way. So did B.B. Um, we were, before we went on the air, you and I were talking about some recordings B.B. King made in the late 70s, which in no way resemble the recordings he was making a decade before that or a decade before that, he continued to evolve. And both Miles Davis and B.B. King had a number of failures, you know, a lot of experiments that were failed experiments, but many, many successes, and we remember them for the successes. And there's some great anecdotes just of, you know, Miles Davis, I think he was the king of suffering no fools and was could be very brusque with almost anybody, but there was, there was just great that it seemed like they really saw each other as, as equals and there wasn't kind of like... Like he stood up to Miles Davis. Miles Davis, you have an anecdote <laughs> yeah. of him kind of yelling at, at BB, and BB yells like, right back. I will back shout at you out if I want to. Yeah, sir. Yeah. Um, this isn't in the book, but when I was in Nashville a few days ago, uh, dining with Walter King, the great Walter King, who is BB's nephew and very, very, very talented. Miles didn't talk to people very often, uh, certainly not to sort of side men, side women. But Walter told me how he came off stage one night after playing some wonderful stuff on the saxophone. And that Miles sort of barked at him, hey, you've been listening to Sonny. And what he meant by that was Miles Davis was, was comparing him very favorably to the great Sonny Rollins, who I think m- might have been Miles Davis's own favorite saxophone player, notwithstanding the wonderful relationship Miles had with Coltrane. Well, let's, uh, let's take another music break here. And you, you mentioned earlier kind of like the massive changes in, in style. So I picked a, a late 70s track of BB's called Better Not Look Down, and it's from 1970, a record in 1979. So maybe just to talk a little bit about that era and kind of what he was trying to do. Yeah, well, BB um, King kept reinventing himself. He, he had enormous ambition and kept changing with the times and to sort of lead his genre out of one decade and into the next. So at the end of the 1960s, he collaborated with Bill Simzik, who's a producer who, who later sort of discovered the Eagles. And Simzik had rock and roll Woodstock sensibilities and he and BB together engineered a number of of LPs that that people you know remember to this day one of them is completely well which had the thrill is gone on it another was uh, Indianola Mississippi Seeds which has the sort of beautiful artwork that won a Grammy on the cover and those records sound like a lot of stuff from the late 60s by a lot of different artists I don't know you could go the gamut from Otis Redding to Dr. John to Janis Joplin uh, to the band or who all, uh, they were, you know, it, the, those records, these B.B. King records went way far afield from the blues into rock and roll and, and funk. 
so and they sold great uh, they were the best sales of bb's career to date and then at the end of the 70s which is the song that you're about to play he had another resurgence in collaboration with the, the crusaders a wonderful sort of pop jazz ensemble that was selling bigger than bb at that time they weren't greater artists i think they i would argue that bb was the greater artist but the crusaders were selling records and they collaborated with bb and put out a couple of recordings that blended you know blues, jazz, funk, even almost disco, um, but it, it worked, and both of those records are tremendous. And uh, th- this record, uh, Take It Home, is that what the record's called? The right, LP? Take It Home. Is one of my probably, I don't know, 10 favorite among the God knows how many B.B. King records there are. It's a good record. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, You can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment of the Arts Hour today. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Daniel DeVise. He is the author of King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, brand new biography out on the Mississippi legend himself. You know, the other thing that you track in the book is kind of his, B.B. King's kind of steady rise. And, you know, with a 60-plus year career, you have highs and you have lows. And, and it's just amazing to see how he kind of regenerates himself time and time again. There's multiples of these, but maybe pick one out of those different resurgences that we can do, because we can't cover them all. There's too many of them. Well, um, if you're you're into numerology, um, I will tell you that at the end of each decade, in these 10-year cycles, he would sort of reinvent himself. And we just mentioned two of them, Simzik, the collaboration with Simzik at the end of the 60s, and the collaboration with the Crusaders and uh, Stu Levine, the producer at the end of the 70s. At the end of the 80s, B.B. collaborated with U2, another another case of an artist I would say BB was the greater artist but you two were massively more successful at that moment uh, selling many more records and they loved BB and they made a, a song together called uh, When Love Comes to Town which was huge and I would say was the highlight of that record I think it was called Rattle and Hum and, and the highlight of the documentary film that came out and I don't know if that record was even a hit for you know by U2 standards but by BB standards it was a massive hit and delivered him a whole new generation of fans and and a whole new level of sales then at the end of the 90s 10 years later he has a collaboration that's sort of long overdue with Eric Clapton Eric Clapton being probably the best known of the British guitarists who fell in love with BB King's style and helped to usher it into to the very very center of pop music at the end of the 60s and uh, Clapton and BB made a record together called I think Riding with the King and that's a very good record um, the only stuff on it I don't like is this quote unquote contemporary numbers they threw in to make it sound current those sound old now <laughs> but the, the 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 vintage numbers in there are beautiful um, and I think John Hyatt might have written 
the song uh, Riding with the King. Yeah, you're right. And that song is wonderful. Yeah. And the whole rest of the record's terrific. It's just a couple on there that's, you'll, you'll know them when you hear them. They, they sound dated now, but they were the ones that were supposed to sound new. So yeah, uh, every decade he would kind of find a renewal and getting into the, really the, what should have been the very end of his career. I mean, he was very old by 2000. He was, he was firing on all cylinders. Oh, and I'll add one more. I'm sorry I'm going to go on too long here, but at the end of the 2000s decade, he has another terrific collaboration with T-Bone Burnett, the record producer and, and great you know, pop star in his own right. And that yields what becomes B.B.'s last studio record, which I think is called One Kind Favor. And it's a great listen. The only people I've talked to who don't like it are, are BB's most most loving bandmates, the people who loved him the most, can't bear to listen to it because it's it's almost like predicting his own death and it's oh, it's right. heavy. So if you love BB as they did, like Tony Coleman, the great drummer, can't listen to that record because geez, you know, it's like funereal and it's mm-hmm. heavy, but it's a it's a wonderful record. Like a lot of people in his um line of work who just get out there and keep going and keep going he really it's you really uh document kind of like how hard he was working and how hard he worked so late into his life i mean it really it was really only the really significant health problems that seemed to finally kind of slow him down just a little bit but yeah well this goes to the essential trait of bb king which was he was a workaholic he was extremely ambitious he was trying to please his father i think even after his father's death uh, by proving that he could work harder than any anyone and i think that i say in the book that he might have done seventeen thousand concerts jerry hershey writing in rolling stone had him doing fifteen thousand concerts by the end of the 90s and the end of the 90s was way before the end of his career. Uh, now, if you're a record or a music critic, you might argue that he should have left the road maybe around the time of that wonderful uh, collaboration with T-Bone Burnett, maybe at the end of the 2000s. But B.B. wasn't going to do that. The people close to him tried to get him to leave the road. They were worried about his health. The, the shows were getting, I think in the book I describe it as being kind of like a sort of a prairie home companion sort of thing with a lot him of talking talking a yeah. lot and and forgetting how well this isn't prairie home companion but forgetting how the songs went and playing the same song again and that sort of thing um the people closest to him all but begged him to leave the road but but uh bb was not having it um he literally performed until he pretty much dropped i mean he, he um all but collapsed at a show in chicago in 2014 and that that was the end of the road did any of the the former sidemen kind of talk about that the toll that that took or were they did did any of them kind of ride it as hard as BB King, or how how did they just kind of describe that that pace that they went for so long? Um, well, I think that the pace was slower toward the end because he wasn't doing as many gigs. I mean, he was physically frail, uh, suffering from diabetes and sort of creeping dementia and many other physical ail. I think uh, you know arthritis. Um, so it wasn't a particularly grueling schedule for his younger musicians, but it was frustrating for them because he had been arguably the the best performer, the greatest performer in the business, or one of them. I mean, he put on phenomenal shows. And anybody listening to, to this, you probably have heard, you probably saw a B.B. King show. They were amazing. I saw him at the Blues Fest in Chicago playing for, God, 200,000 people, and it knocked my socks off, you know. But in these latter years, he was really struggling, and it would have been enormously frustrating. It was enormously frustrating for his uh, for, for Walter, his nephew, and Tony Coleman, the drummer, and everybody else, Boogaloo, the great trumpeter, everybody else I interviewed were very frustrated toward the end because it was just it was just very painful for them to watch this man they loved really struggling. 
You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Daniel DeVise. He is the author of King of the Blues, Rise and Reign of B.B. King, brand new biography on the music legend. Something else you document, and, and this is one of the places where a lot of Mississippians saw him. For many years, he did the, the, the homecoming concerts. So he would come to the Jackson area and work with Charles Evers, Megger Evers' brother, and, and do the memorial concerts to Megger Evers. But then also they, and, and, and I didn't realize how far back, you, you specifically kind of go into the Indianola homecoming and how that, because he originally was not really that hot on going back to, to Indianola because he had not had the greatest experiences there as a performer. Yeah, well, um, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, I will say that, I, I had a very hard time researching B.B. Uh, King's involvement in the civil rights movement because he did it all very privately and very behind the scenes. I don't think I ever read an account anywhere of him performing at a civil rights benefit, but he did apparently over and over again. I, I interviewed people who told me so, and I put that in the book, but it was hard to really go anywhere with it because it was never written about. He was so modest and did it all behind the scenes. But in the 70s, I think upon the 10-year anniversary of Medgar Evans' death, uh, he started publicly, openly, publicly, you know, participating in these annual tributes, and that became one of the biggest things for which he was known. I think starting maybe in 73, would that have been the year? I know it was far, it was, it was yeah, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, and, and Charles Evers, the the brother, uh, was, was collaborating with B.B. on those events. And then at the close of the 70s, uh, B.B. finally went back to Indianola, I, I didn't know, but recently learned that Mary Shepard, who ran Club Ebony, was the one who persuaded him to come back. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't know this, but uh, yeah, he, he had stayed away for many years, and this I say in the book, and the reason he'd stay away was that uh, the segregation, you know, he, he, he and or his band were not served, were not permitted service in some establishments in Indianola, and he said, well, fine, I'll, I'll go somewhere else then. Uh, but but people, including uh, Jim Abbott, the editor of the Indianola Enterprise Toxin, and and Mary Shepard lured him back and got him to come back and and the the Indianola Enterprise Toxin the paper ends up running basically a big valentine to him in print saying you know we love you we want to see you again and so he returned he started coming back and the the biggest moment in all this is 1983 when uh, a host of, of black and white uh, dignitaries in Indianola basically all of the fathers and mothers of industry or whatever in town have this huge party and invite him to it and that makes the front page of the New York Times if you can believe it just because it was this moment when finally black and white Mississippi quote-unquote finally comes together to celebrate the man and I think he's maybe he might be kind of unique in a lot of prominent Mississippi performers who maintain such a connection to the state you know everyone could kind of count on him coming back every June he would be here so you know and then multiple generations got to see him one of the things that's also interesting about a person like B.B. King is, every, you know, he's much beloved and, and you document in the, um, in the book how much time he would spend with fans, stay after the show and sign for hours, sign autographs. For B.B. King to be that beloved, he had to have the kind of the hard-nosed people around him to protect him. And you see that with a lot of performers that type. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that group of guys that he you know, his friends and kind of protectors. Yeah, I'm going to forget some of this, but the most important one was Norman Matthews, who had uh, gone into B.B.'s employ at the very beginning. At the urging of B.B.'s father, Albert said, go and protect the man, you know. And so Norman became kind of his wingman and was a pretty tough guy. And they uh, were inseparable uh, until 
until Norman's death. And I think Norman died maybe within a year of BB. And Laura Walker, who was very, very close to BB, told me that, you know, she thought that that was basically it, that once Norman was gone, that BB was on borrowed time. It was so devastating to him. They were, he was his closest friend. And again, this is a man who, who desperately wanted a family. And I think Norman was like his brother. And they traveled together for years and years and years. There was another man named Bebop Edwards, who was more an employee, but a very early and very trusted employee who was with BB for many, many, many years and got into all kinds of hijinks, um, both together and separately. But these two men were his wingmen. And if you were backstage and ran into Norman or Bebop, you know, they might give you the bum rush, you know, and, and they'd be pretty harsh with you, which BB never was. You know, I think that really sweet lovable, wonderful people like B.B. needed someone tough to kind of, because there would be drunk fools who would come backstage and try to harass him or, let me tell you my business proposal, you know, and this happened constantly with B.B. King, and B.B. wasn't going to, you know, shoo them away, but Bebop sure could. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love the descriptions you have of kind of like how Norman, who who is his longtime friend, you know, that they would basically yell at each other in public <laughs> but then like uh privately like he was helping norman learn how to read learn how to read yeah. i think he wrote it on you know dryer sheets i or a uh, laundry la laundromat sheets i don't do laundromats but apparently if you get stuff back from the laundromat back at a, in a certain day it'd be, there'd have this paper <laughs> so he would write stuff on paper and teach and norman was apparently a, a genius cook could cook, could whip up a meal out of nowhere I interviewed um, Mr. Norman Matthews' widow, who was wonderful and helped helped to connect the dots. But yeah, they were so important. I think BB that Norman reminded BB of kind of where he'd come from, and and just made him feel at home in these these this endless endless stream of sort of foreign lands. I mean, literally ninety different countries, but also just some random holiday in somewhere. You know, having Norman there, I think, was a, a wonderful solace to BB. Well, for people who are interested in learning more about the book and 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 your other your other writing, where, where can we send them? Uh, well, I want to say that um, the reason for, to buy this book, even if you're not, don't, don't think you want to know much, you know, if you think you know everything there is to know about B.B. King is, if you're a fan of Buddy Guy or Robert Cray or Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or Carlos Santana, all of those people would tell you, those who are still alive, that B.B. King is where this all comes from. So if you, if you read this book, I will give you those people. I will give you uh, Eric Clapton. I will give you Jimi Hendrix. Um, I, I will. I will give you Sun Seals and uh, Otis Rush and all of the great guitarists. I mean, I can help you as a listener to this music connect the dots up to the present day. But as far as actually getting the book, um, there are some wonderful bookstores in Mississippi that that have autographed copies of the book in abundance. Any of these places will can ship one to anybody. Turnrow in Greenwood. Lemuria in Jackson, Square Books in Oxford, Parnassus in Nashville. Uh, the B.B. King Museum in Indianola has a whole bunch of copies. Now, those might be gone by now because everybody who walks in there is interested in B.B. King, but they probably still have some, and I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. The, the museum complex right here in town also has some signed copies. At least they did as of yesterday. The two Mississippi museums in Jackson. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Yeah. yes. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. 
On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. 